Hello, Lanky Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lanky Thoughts Podcast. First off, I want to hope you all are doing well. I know during this time, it's a bit of a struggle to stay motivated, stay positive during it all. So I just wanted to wish you all the best. I hope everyone out there is doing okay, and I hope these podcasts are helping in some way. Um, you know, I am always open for topics or suggestions on what uh, an episode could cover. I know I've covered a lot in uh, the over 80 episodes I've done, but I'm always open to revisit topics or discuss anything. So feel free to message me that on Lankly Thoughts on Instagram or email me if you so choose. But I really just want to say I hope you all are doing well. And I'm very um, glad that if you're listening to this right now, this is helping you in some way. My guest today is Hannah Kreloff. Uh, she is originally from New Jersey and now lives and works in Manhattan. She is a pastry cook turned sommelier and captain at Batard in Tribeca. And the reason I wanted to have her on is because I wanted to have her kind of talk about, obviously, the front of house, talk about what it is to be a sommelier and kind of how this whole pandemic has affected her right now. Uh, But basically, we talk a lot about wine. And I do enjoy the episodes where I get to kind of get away from wine cooking for a little bit to kind of discuss something that I'm not totally comfortable with. And wine is one of those topics that I am truly not comfortable with. And I really am appreciative that Hannah would come on the show and talk to me for about 40 minutes on wine. Um, I thought it was really cool. I thought that she had a lot of knowledge to offer to everyone listening, and I'm really excited for you all to hear it. I do want to say before we get into the episode that there is some connection issues, and I know this is on the last episode as well. Uh, as you know, I do do all my interviews remotely. Uh, I've had a little bit of issues with the servers lately. I'm not sure if it's because um, more people are using them. So there is a little crackling here and there. I tried to edit out as much as I could without, you know, taking away from the episode, but just want to give you a quick heads up, um, because I do know that y'all tend to listen to this while, you know, walking or cooking at home or something, and I just, you know, wanted to make you all aware of that, but I just want to say thank you again for tuning in. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show, and here we go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ray. <laughs> uh, if you just want to start off by introducing yourself, that would be great. Yeah, uh, so my name's Hannah. I'm originally from New Jersey. I sort of currently work in New York City uh, at a restaurant called Batard, where I am a captain and assistant sommelier. Um, with everything going on right now, back in New Jersey, though, and uh, I met Ray or know Ray from the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to go back to, uh, I guess, growing up in New Jersey. What was food like for you growing up? Um, for me, it, was, it wasn't great, but it wasn't really bad. I didn't have to fend for myself to eat. Um, my family can cook. They're not, like, obsessed with it or in love with it that they've spent, like, a lot of time trying to hone their craft. Um, we went out a fair amount, and I think as I got more into food, we branched out a little bit more, but we started off, like, going out, or, like, a birthday celebration was TGI Fridays, or a place like that was, like, a treat to get to go there, and I think 
once I really got into food um, closer into high school age, then my family was a little bit more open to trying new places or wanting to go and have experiences in restaurants and understanding more that going out to eat was, was not just for consumption. It was an experience. Um, yeah. And I think for me starting out, I was probably in like middle school when I started wanting to be in the kitchen and be a part of what was happening, um, around the food I ate and not just sitting and waiting for someone to serve me dinner that night. Okay. What, um, what, like what happened in middle school that you kind of realized that you wanted to be, uh, in the food industry? I think if I can remember correctly, so I always loved to bake and I grew up baking with my, my grandma and with my mom. And I remember being stuck at home alone one night, my family had gone out. I didn't have a friend over anything. And I remember making these banana cupcakes with peanut butter icing for some reason. And my parents came home with their friends and everybody had them and they were a hit. And it was the first time I'd baked by myself, I think. And I'd baked something new and made something myself and invented it to an extent um, by combining different recipes. And I, I loved it. Um, and so during that time, I, I used to bake a lot. I would just be bringing baked goods into school with me. It wasn't a surprise if I showed up to a soccer practice with like a dozen or two dozen cupcakes, or if it was someone's birthday, I made a point to make cupcakes, I think in high school, multiple times, I used it to get like extra credit or things by bringing in cupcakes (laughs) to class. Um, And with that, I had decided when I was in eighth grade that I wanted to uh, go to the vocational high school in our town uh, for culinary arts. So I spent two and a half, three hours out of each of my, out of each uh, school day, going to a vocational school, learning both baking, culinary arts, and we did some front of the house work as well in a small restaurant that we had there. And I did that for four years. And by then it had really solidified that like, this is what I wanted to be doing. And it was a great experience because, I mean, as you know, a lot of people go to culinary school and realize really early on, wait, I don't like this as much as I thought I did. And for me, I already had years of, okay, this is what culinary school is like on a small scale. So I knew that that's where I really wanted to be. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the path that I think a lot of people who I've talked to uh, kind of take that, uh, you know, going to culinary school, before like going to college, like having those vocational programs in their high school. Um, I mean, I think they're so important. And um, I think that they, uh, they just kind of, like you said, set you up for success later on down the road. And they just give you a taste of what it's like. And a lot of people in those programs end up not liking it. And I think that's a good thing. So I, I don't know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are. But I definitely think like that cooking in general has to be more important in high school and middle school, or at least in terms of fending for yourself. Yeah, I I think it's something that people don't realize almost how important it is. I mean, how many people that that didn't go to culinary school, that is, get out of college, go move to a city or move away from home. And all of a sudden, they're like, wait, here's a kitchen. All I know how to make is mac and cheese or pasta. And maybe they can make meatballs or they can make some chicken of some sort. But really knowing how to cook and how to create things and really like provide for yourself without relying on like frozen food or prepackaged food or 
whatever it is, it makes a huge difference in how we take care of our bodies and how we fill up time. And I think even with like the state of things today, people are starting to realize that a lot more of like, oh, it's time to like, we can spend time teaching our children how to cook certain things because we're all home and they can help. But I think it's incredibly important and it's underutilized to an extent that people aren't like teaching cooking in the same way we once did. Yeah. Uh, do you do you think there'll be any change in curriculum in terms of like public schools, in terms of cooking and teaching people how to do more basic necessity things like that after this is all said and done? I would hope so. Um, obviously, in like education systems aren't perfect, but there's a lot of them that base a lot on we're learning this to pass a test, but at the end of the day, there's no more tests to take. We're on our own. We have to be able to do certain things to really thrive, I think. And I think cooking is one of those things, for sure. Very, like, prominent thing that we we all have to do. <laughs> at the end of the day, like, you can send certain things out or somebody can do your taxes for you, but it's really expensive and really hard to not provide three meals for yourself every day at a minimum. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, even in like middle school, they had like a cooking class that we took, but you didn't really, I don't remember learning much in it. <laughs> no. What, uh, well, like, what did you, what exactly did they teach you in it? I just remember we would like go in and it was for like a few weeks like it was rotated out with like arts classes and we had like a sewing class and a computer class and we would just like you would be in a group of like four people and you would take turns like doing certain things but I don't remember it being like the most useful of things to learn how to cook like it wasn't like here are really simple things that everyone should know how to do it was like oh here are these recipes we're going to give you and you'll follow them instead of like I don't know maybe making everyone feel comfortable with a knife and then, okay, this is how you make a roast chicken, which in my eyes is like one of the simplest things to cook and just one of the tastiest, most heartwarming things to eat. And it's so easy. Anyone could truly do it, but it was way more like, okay, we're going to follow this recipe to a T and this is how it ends up. And this is what each person does. And now we'll eat it as opposed to like really learning skills to be able to like fend for yourself in a kitchen when maybe you don't have all those same ingredients and you just have some vegetables and a protein and some salt and pepper and like oil to work with. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, uh, I mean, I didn't even have that in my school. So, I mean, I think that's kind of cool that you had that kind of experience in your middle school. Um, but yeah, I, I would hope that after this all said and done, that there is a more of an emphasis on teaching people how to cook because it's just such a basic necessity. Um, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's crazy to me that we we are not taught that at a young, younger age. Yeah, it's really just based on whether or not, like, you want to or if your parents are forcing you to. <laughs> and then if not, you're kind of just, like, swept along. I mean, I can't even, like, think about how many people that I come across or meet that are just, like, I don't know how to cook at all. But, like, yeah, the idea yeah. that at this point is too scary to even want to do it. Yeah, I know. Um, but getting back into your career and kind of how you progress things. So you went to culinary school and what was that experience like? Culinary school was great. 
I, I think it was just so fun to be able to do something so unique and to be so just everything that we did at school was about food. I mean, you took an accounting class, you took a writing class, you took a math class. It was about food. It was about cooking. And I've had a passion for food for such a long time that it was just great to be in a room full of people that were all passionate about the same thing. And were all passionate about bettering themselves and bettering their skills and just wanting to be the best they could at cooking or baking or anything really involving like the hospitality industry and involving food. And Mm -hmm. I think it allowed me to just like shine almost as like all of a sudden it's like, great, we're all here. We all want this. And it really helped. Like I already knew I wanted to be there, but it helped show me all the other options I also had within this industry. Going in, I I was like, oh, I'm going to be a baker. I'm going to bake goodies and cupcakes and cookies and treats. And that's what I'm going to do. And I mean, I've completely done a 180 at this point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it, it gave me so many other options and really broadened my abilities in the restaurant industry as a whole, I think. Okay. What, um, <laughs> what do you think was your decision behind uh, switching from baking to front of house? So initially it was that I was a little, I was pretty interested in wine and that was an obvious route. And I really missed not talking to people. I really loved working in kitchens. I loved working in restaurants, but I missed that interaction with the guest where I got to see how their meal was going or if they liked something or if they didn't like something. And I I craved that sort of connection with people that you don't really get in the same way in most kitchens. And I figured with the skills that I had from baking, if I learned as much as I could about front of house and at the end of the day, if I tried it out and didn't love it, that I always had the kitchen to fall back on. And Mm -hmm. I figured it couldn't hurt myself professionally to learn more skills. And so in doing that, I have this option now where, okay, I love front of house and I can stay here. But if one day I want to do something else, I still have the skills to do other things. Whereas if I had just been in focusing on kitchen things the whole time, maybe I wouldn't have the same skill set to be able to to switch back and forth in the way I can now. Okay. And what is it about front of house that you like? Like, what are the aspects you really like about it? It's it's really nice. It sounds terrible to an extent, but it's really nice to not work in a New York City basement and not see the sunlight. Um, my first <laughs> job in New York was working in pastry, and we were downstairs in the basement, and you just didn't know what was going on outside in the world. You didn't know what was going on in the dining room. And back to that whole connection with people. I mean, it's, it's really lovely to, to make relationships with regulars or just to ha- make someone's night extra special in any way possible. And I really love that. And I also um, really just enjoy getting to talk to people about the food, getting to talk to people about themselves or myself or just talking in general to not the same like pastry cook all day or talking to the same four people that you work with uh, is a really I think special relationship that we get to have in this industry where people are coming to us to have a great time or to escape their everyday life a little bit and whatever we can do to make that special we have that ability okay um I mean yeah I I mean 
I think front of house is interesting in the fact that you do get to interact with the guests and like you said, you get to be there for them and have the ability to kind of shape their dining experience. Um, do you think in school, I mean, so you, when you were in bachelor's, do you think that was something that like really helped you uh, come into your own in terms of front of house or did you not pick up these skills until after you left college? I think it's a mix. I think in my bachelor's degree, I had done the concentration in uh, wine and beverage. And I think the skills that I learned at the California campus, learning about wine and beverage really did help shape me. And I think without that course that I, I would not be in the position I'm in today, at least like being having the ability to be an assistant som in, in a restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. But I think some of the skills are just, I, I did learn with my associate's degree, like working in apple pie and getting that first just taste of having interaction with people outside of those you work with. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly with that, obviously, because <laughs> there are definitely <laughs> days where you may not want to, where, where somebody is not as as happy or excited as you want them to be, and, and there people can be mean sometimes. It happens everywhere. Um, <laughs> but I definitely think uh, real-life experience is important, and I learn a lot from the people that I work with and just going to work every single day. But some of those skills are definitely ones that have to be, I guess, formed in a classroom, somewhat of a classroom setting or in a learning environment that's not just work. Okay. Tell me about your uh, wines concentration. And like for those, because I know a lot of listeners obviously wouldn't have gone through that. What was that experience like? What did you learn? And I mean, I know it's like very intense. So did you feel that it (laughs) was intense or? It was It was probably my hardest semester of school, but also at least like bachelor's for sure, the hardest semester, but also the most rewarding. Um, We only had like each one of our academic classes two days a week. So there wasn't a lot of classroom time. A lot of the studying was you sitting at home, maybe with a friend or two or your roommate and just studying like crazy. Um, The amount of information that we were expected to know was very beneficial but very intimidating at the same time and especially when you come from working in kitchens where everything is hands-on you're so used to oh I I made this cake it came out good today I I iced it beautifully my piping was really great that you can physically see and you can say oh I did really well it's all hands-on And to switch and do an entire 180 and everything is studying and memorizing and writing maps and coloring and labeling is a huge switch. And so I think that shell shock of like being in more of a classroom setting than anything else is really what was difficult for a lot of us. But getting to live in Napa in St. Helena for three months and pretty much live amongst the vineyards and get to go out every single week and taste wine and be a part of like the wine culture in Napa was like priceless. I mean, it was expensive, but it was priceless. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that really helped shape that experience. And I mean, it's, it's pretty lucky to be able to go to a school and be a part of like a program where you can study wine in that level uh, there's there's not many other programs that offer it in the way that the CIA does. And I think that that also makes it really special um, to be learning from master sommeliers and 
they they really <laughs> put you up to it and, and expect a lot from us. So I think their expectations and them being tough on us really helps. I mean, I just remember our first day of lines class, our professor's like, you're going to have homework once a week. We have two exams in this class. You have a midterm, which was all based on new world. And you had a final at the end of the class, which is all based on old world. And they're each worth 40% of your grade. And we were all sitting there just like, none of our other work is going to matter. What you get on these tests determines whether you pass or fail this class pretty much. And being told, okay, you're going to also have blind tastings when we've never really done them before in a, like a, a test format is really intimidating to hear. And they really taught us what we needed to know to get through that course and to then be able to take those skills that we learned and really apply them to ourselves in the industry, I think. Okay. Um, for those who don't know what new world or old world means in terms of wine, could you explain that for them? Yeah, of course. So old world wines are all of, is, is practically just Europe and then new world being everything else. So new world comes down to, you have the United States, New Zealand, South America, um, Australia, and then, um, Old world being more like France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Europe, pretty much. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you prefer? Do you have a pre- like preference on either or? or? I do. Um, the restaurant that I currently work at, uh, we specialize in the wine specifically of Burgundy, which is a small region uh, in France. And so... We tend to, at work and in our own personal lives, uh, me and the other psalms that I work with, drink almost strictly Burgundy. Um, and we definitely specialize in it, which is a really has been a really special experience for me to be able to specialize in a wine region. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of wine programs and education is, is very broad, and, and everyone likes to know as much as they can about every place. Um, it's been really special for me to be able to learn that you can specialize and you can specialize in whatever region it really is that you want to and that you love and you have a connection with. Um, but sometimes it's it's a little bit more like more unique to um, more unique of a skill set to um, know a ridiculous amount about one place versus a little bit about everywhere else. And so I do tend to drink mostly wines from there. I make make some exceptions for some nice German Riesling and champagne, but <laughs> okay, that's what I normally drink. Um, <laughs> all right, and what are some wines you would get from that region, or some what are some grape varieties? Um, so in Burgundy, uh, it's mostly just Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. There's some slight exceptions for. Aligote, which is an ancient white grape uh, from Burgundy, as well as Gamay, which is a red grape from the area as well. Um, but most of the wines being made are all just 100% Chardonnay or 100% Pinot Noir. Um, and then there's a little bit of sparkling production as well that they do called Cremant de Bourgogne, um, which are pretty inexpensive and super tasty. And a lot of what I've found or what I've learned from working at Batard is uh, a lot of people think that Burgundy has outpriced itself and that it's really, really hard to find value. And we like to disagree with that. Yes, you can spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of Burgundy 
and that is your own choice. But you can also go to the store and, and spend like $30 or less and drink a really delicious bottle of Burgundy. And so I think it's really important to, to kind of change that message a little bit. And it's really exciting to work with a wine list where somebody can come in and think that they can't drink from a certain place because of what they've told and say, well, you can spend as much as you want tonight, but for under a hundred dollars or for under $80, you can drink a really delicious bottle of wine. Then we'd, we'd be really excited and happy to open ourselves personally. Um, so it's been a really fun aspect of what I get to do at work. Yeah. I mean, that sounds really cool that you have that opportunity to kind of change the perception of a certain wine. Um, I mean, so there's like, you mentioned like four great varieties, but do you have any like favorite vineyards or is there anyone in, in Burgundy that you just like really enjoy that you would recommend to someone listening right now that they could probably go out and buy? Yeah, of course. Um, a lot of things will definitely differ from store to store. Um, and so some of that is just like maybe searching or using like Googling it and finding where you can get it. But some stuff I really just love to drink in general on like a day off or when I'm not looking to spend too much, which I think a lot of people, especially now are, are looking for, is to find a producer that you really love and buy their like entry level wine. So buy their Bourgogne Blanc or their Bourgogne Rouge or village bottling from them. Some producers that I personally really love, one is David Moreau, uh, who's a small producer in the village of Santenay. He makes mostly red wines with some white and anything from his Bourgogne Rouge up to some of his like Premier Cru's are all just delicious. I had some <laughs> earlier this week. Um, another producer that I, I really love is called Domaine Testu which is actually located in Chablis, which is at the opposite of um, where the other wines were from. Uh, just uh, way north is of uh, Burgundy, or the rest of Burgundy is going to be Chablis. It's all white for the most part. Um, and then the same thing with uh, David Moreau is they're really just like accessible, easy drinking, like very food friendly wines that Hopefully somebody can find at the store. <laughs> um, it's really hard. I know even within New York, you could look for something and there's so many different like wine shops and places that it's like almost hard to sometimes find what you're looking for, but you end up getting something else along the way. Um, but yeah, just experimenting and being open to saying, okay, maybe I'll spend five more dollars than I normally would. And instead of spending $20, you spend $25 on a bottle of wine and maybe you make a special dinner with it or make it a special night for you and your family or a significant other and just like enjoy it. See, like open it, drink some while you're cooking and see how the bottle tastes from start to finish and evolve. And I think a lot of wine, it, it comes off super pretentious, but I don't think that it needs to be. Um, and I think being a young Psalm and the way I personally am, I think it makes it a lot more fun and trying to get people to just try new things and not be so afraid of the sommelier in the restaurant is, is what I try and do. Um, and for people that don't know me, I'm quite petite and very smiley. And so for me, I think <laughs> my goal is to just make people not be so afraid of a sommelier in a restaurant or be intimidated by talking to someone because I think it's a big 
um, almost issue that people are scared that like someone's just going to throw too much knowledge at them that they don't really know what is being said. Um, but if you talk or experience that, it's uh, not all Psalms are like that, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I went okay. off on a tangent there, right? <laughs> no, you're good. Um, I just wondering, uh, so then like going off of that, what would your process be like in terms of suggesting a wine to someone in a restaurant? Cause you know, it can be pretty intimidating. Um, so like, I guess when you approach the table and they're asking you for guidance, I, how do you start that process off? Yeah. So, um, something that we like to start off with saying, if like somebody didn't call us over is just asking what we can get started for the person. If they're looking, if they're actively looking at a wine list, instead of saying like, what are you looking for? What do you need to know? Just like, what can I get started for you? And if somebody knows what they want, that's great. And I'm not going to question them or tell them that that's the wrong bottle of wine to drink. Like, if that's what they want, that's what they want. But the second somebody says, oh, I don't really know, the first thing that um, I like to do, and I think my coworkers as well, is, is to establish a price point. And in, like, trying not to make it an issue at all. Because I think a lot of people are afraid to, like, say a price point that they're comfortable with. And the wines on our wine list range from like $46 all the way up into like $10,000. So if somebody is is not able to say like, oh, I want to spend under 100 or I want to spend 300 or I want to spend 1000 like that's great. Like I don't really care how much you want to spend truthfully. I want to find you something that you're going to be happy drinking. And so the first like thing is, okay, how much do you really want to spend do you want to drink white wine or red wine tonight? And then within that, what kind of wine are you looking for? There's a huge range. And so if you want to drink white and you want something super crisp, refreshing, or you can want something that's like a little bit rich and denser, and those are going to be two completely different wines. So just establishing something like that first. And then from there, just depending on what they say, going from or like making two to three recommendations of things that they might like around the price range that they gave and maybe giving some more insight at that point, if there's something special about the producer or if there's a little bit something special about a wine or it's whatever it might be that, that makes me want to like use or recommend that specific wine. Okay. And so what about uh, in terms of tasting, how does, like, so say they say someone got a bottle of wine and they didn't end up liking it. What would you do in that situation? Um. So when that has happened, some of it, truthfully, to an extent, does, um, like rely a little bit on like the price point of the bottle, um, mm-hmm. and like how we might have explained something to them. So if somebody says to me that they wanted something and we gave them exactly what they wanted, and they decided they didn't like that, we're going to respond a little bit differently than if it was maybe they were had said something and, sorry, um, and maybe we gave them something that was not exactly in line, or they didn't give us much information, so we kind of just had to go with something in their price point. Uh, it doesn't happen all that often, truthfully. 
Um, okay. My, over a year, I've come across it just one time. It ended up being a pretty inexpensive bottle, and we were able to bring him something else instead. So it wasn't a huge loss at the restaurant. Um, so I, most of the time when people are deciding to like maybe send something back, the wine is flawed, but we don't exactly, we, we taste before we serve. So any wine that we're serving to a guest, we have already established that it is not um, flawed in any way. Okay. And how can you tell if a wine is flawed? So a lot of it is, is practice. Um, knowing and having the experience to smell a flawed wine if it's the wine is oxidized or well sometimes people like purposely oxidized wines but if it's oxidized or if it's corked and you can learn by reading about what corked wine smells like which it smells to me at least very much like wet cardboard which is pretty unpleasant to most people and just musty and then having the experience to open a bottle and smell it and say, oh, okay, this is what that smells like. And we're not going to serve something that smells like that. And then just like, almost like muscle memory of knowing like, okay, this is what that smells like. In the same way as like seasoning food of knowing like the line that you hit when you decide something is perfectly salted versus too salty, if that makes sense. Just knowing where you are in that process. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because um, I honestly have never smelled a corked wine. So <laughs> I've always wondered, you know, those first couple of times how you, how you would kind of know. So it's, uh, it's yeah, interesting. And a lot like, of it is like almost, <laughs> it's almost getting lucky enough to find a corked bottle early on. And hopefully it's something that's like your wine's by the glass or something like that. And I know for us at work, every so often we, uh, when we find a corked bottle, we pass it around to all the staff and everybody gets a little like tiny reminder of like, oh, right, that's what this smells like. And for us at Psalms, if I smell something and I'm not 100% sure, I have coworkers I can then trust to say, okay, is this corked? Is it the wine? Things like that. Um, and it's something that you just build upon. But to start off, if you smell some, if you're smelling your wine and you're like, this doesn't really smell pleasant or this doesn't smell like close to what I thought it would be, there's more of a chance that there is a flaw in the wine, um, especially in that whole like musty, wet cardboard, wet newspaper sort of smell, which is not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine. Um, so I want to go back to kind of you ending wines and going out for work into like the industry. What, um, what was your process? Like, were you undecided, were you decided at that point that you wanted to pursue wine in front of house or was there any thought when you graduated that maybe you wanted to get back into baking? Uh, what was your decision-making like after school? Um, so after school and in my, approximately my, my last semester as a bachelor student, I was definitely, like committed to going into the front of house. And I, in my mind, that was my chance of getting out, experiencing this. And I felt that if I decided to go into a kitchen, I may not have ever had it in me to just leave in the same way I did. And so I was completely set on going into front of house. I was very adamant about finding a job and finding a job early on. I didn't want to be stressed at the end of like trying to deal with all my classes and finals and graduating and not have a job lined up. And so I set myself a deadline and said, you're, you're going to 
Um, I pretty much said to myself graduating December 18th that before December 1st, I would have a job and be committed to one place. And so I started my search and I did a lot of work with the website culinary agents and searching on my own and reaching out to restaurants and seeing job postings and spending a lot of weekends or nights commuting from the Hyde Park campus um, on Metro North to New York City to go for interviews and do stages everywhere. And I, uh, I got lucky that I, I had a few options and was able to make the best decision for me, um, which ended up being Batard. And I had a really great opportunity that I was told up front that yes, I was starting as a food runner, uh, but I would also have the opportunity to work with the wine team. And that was something that not every place could promise to a new hire. And so I, I jumped at that. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I mean, that, I mean, just what about New York City that made you want to stay? Because I know like, a lot of people from school ended up working in New York, but I know a lot of people did end up leaving. What about the city made you want to pursue your career there? I love New York. Uh, I think it's, I have yet to find a city that gives you the energy that New York City does. Uh, you're in an area with one, just so many restaurants and so many incredible restaurants and opportunities. And I, I just love New York as a whole and uh, growing up so close to New York and being able to go in with my family every so often was such a treat. And uh, when I was doing my externship, I did that in New York City and it really just solidified how much I wanted to, to live in New York and be a part of it. Um, it's as, as I get, I'm lucky enough to travel a lot. Every, I feel like every city I go to, I say, I really like this city. It's really fun. But like, it, it doesn't have that same feeling that I have when I'm in New York. Um, I think it's, I think the energy is infectious and there's just a sense of urgency that it's not apparent to me in other places. And I think part of that is what really draws me to New York. Okay. What are some restaurants you enjoy eating at in New York? <laughs> That's like the most loaded question you could have asked me, Ray. <laughs> um, ooh. Uh, one, well, not really a restaurant. Uh, one of my favorite bars is the Dead Rabbit. I'm lucky enough to live pretty close, and I just think it's one of the most fun bars in New York. Um, where else do I eat? Uh, I really love the Nomad. I think it's one of the most consistent restaurants I, I go to, and every time I go there, the food is perfect, the service is perfect, and you just feel, like, comfortable. Um, I've been lucky enough to enjoy some really special meals as well, and uh, two of those that come straight to my mind are Aquavit and Atera, and I think both of those are insanely special restaurants for special occasions, but like perfect food, really fun and just full experiences at both those restaurants. Um, I could go on forever talking about this, I feel like, but I'm blanking <laughs> a little bit. Um, <laughs> No, you're good. Uh, I mean, I agree with New York. Uh, I got to live there last year for a few months. And yeah, I mean, like you said, the energy is great. Um, every every day, something is, it's just like something's new every day. Uh, every time I went out to eat, every time I wanted to go try something new, everywhere I went, it was just like, you're so involved and there's just so much food around you. And um, I'll, never, I'll never forget like my first time to New York City. Um, just like the amount of, I went on like one of those school trips to Little Italy and uh, just the diversity of all the restaurants in this one little area and all the things that I could eat that weren't 
terribly priced. I mean, I know New York City has a reputation for having expensive restaurants, but we got to eat a lot of like street food and stuff that was like obviously not as expensive. Um, mm-hmm. But just the city in a whole is just a beautiful place to live. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, a little jealous that you live there, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's just because, well, you know, New York is great. Oh, yeah. I mean, with everything going on, I, I have been staying in New Jersey with my family because it's safer and every day I just sit here and think about how much I miss New York I miss the sound of cars going past my window or like a, a siren every so often it's it's very quiet to be back in the suburbs but you just miss that energy and that togetherness that you feel in, in New York and I mean it's very true I mean Little Italy is a great example but I mean Chinatown is huge and full of restaurants where you can go in and maybe you go to dim sum with your friends or you go and like, for me, I'll go and have a bowl of pho like too often, but it's crazy and expensive. I mean, a huge bowl of pho can cost you like $9 if you go to like so many different places. And that's like a meal and a half practically. And as much as you can go and like enjoy a really like insane or a really special food experience, like there's also that same experience and going and trying something new. I mean, I can't think of a culture or like pretty much any culture that doesn't have some sort of um, representation in the food scene in New York City. So whatever you're craving, you can find it. And the chances that it will be delivered are pretty high at that point too. But you can just go to a new neighborhood and spend a whole day exploring someplace someplace else. And it's almost like it's a new city from neighborhood to neighborhood. And I don't, I just... I don't know where else you can experience it on that level. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, it is definitely tough seeing what's going on right now. Uh, I did want to get into uh, kind of how you're dealing with the whole situation with the pandemic. I mean, I know it must be tough. I mean, it's tough for me to watch everyone in New York kind of deal with it. Everyone around the world, obviously, but, you know, seeing New York City get hit so hard. Uh, how have you been dealing with the pandemic in your time off? Yeah, I am trying my best to just stay some level like of active um I've pretty much limited my own tv hours as an adult and just I've been taking whatever opportunities I have to talk to a friend to read a new book to play a board game and cook like crazy as well and bake a lot and just trying to to enjoy having some time off from work uh, we all work really crazy. We work crazy hours. And this is a time to take it slow a little bit, um, but to not get, at least for me, caught up in the uh, like aspect of doing nothing, um, trying to be productive as possible and taking care of ourselves because I know I don't take care of myself as well as I should most of the time when I'm working and work is very much all, most of what I do. And so just slowing down, appreciating having some time off when we don't normally get time off and just trying to make the best out of a really bad situation and take care of ourselves and our families through food really too. Um, It's, (laughs) it's, it's obviously really terrible and it's really hard um, to actually even be away from New York um, through this time. And being away from family and being away from friends, but I've even noticed that I've become closer or been able to talk more with some of my friends than I normally do. And I'm that person that's always like, I can schedule you in a week from now for an hour long phone call at this time, 
because that's when I have time to, or that's my one day off this week. And so it's been really special for me to be able to call friends once a week or multiple times a week or, or be able to text them through the hours of like two o'clock and 10 o'clock or 1030 at night when normally my phone is off or in my pocket and I don't have connection with people and being around when they're not working. And I think that's been a really special opportunity for me to be able to say, yes, I have the time. I have the time to sit and talk to you on your podcast for as long as, as we can. And I have the time to talk to a friend I haven't spoken to in a long time or spend time talking to my family and just trying to use that time to the best of our abilities, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think the time more than anything needs to be used and, you know, to kind of reset and balance out your life and kind of get things in order. I mean, that's how I'm taking it. Um, For, I guess, a question for you, for anyone listening right now who's interested in wine, but obviously can't really go out right now. Are there any sources you would recommend or any videos or content that you've seen that would be helpful in establishing some basic knowledge on wine or books even? Yeah, I think books are a really great option. They're one of, I feel like the few things that are pretty easy to access still, be it if you're using like a Kindle or if you're downloading books or if you're able, I mean, Amazon is still shipping, so you can get a book shipped to yourself. Um, some like the, the most entry level or most like easy to understand book about wine for my, from my experience in the past was called Wine Folly, which is very like graphic and just not so much of like a textbook to read, but just informational about all different grapes and different wine regions. Um, there's another book called the world Atlas of world Atlas of taste is yes. And that's a really great book as well. That goes a little bit more in depth and, and more like actually reading a book, um, about wine. And then, I mean, something else you can do is just maybe every so like when you do leave your home or if you're in a city where there's places that are delivering wine or you get wine shipped to your apartment or your home, just trying something different and trying something maybe you don't normally purchase and spending some time with a bottle of wine and and seeing how it evolves can be like insanely beneficial and understanding how that tastes and you decide, oh, how do I, how would I describe this if I was talking to someone about this and things like that can really expand your knowledge on wine. Um, I know there's a Psalm whose name is Jane Lopes. You can find her on Instagram under that name. And she's posted all of her study guides um, on her website um, from when she was studying for master sommelier exams. That's a really great reference. It's free. She posted all of her study guides. Um, She was doing them slowly. And then when this happened, she posted the rest of her remaining ones. Um, So that's a really great resource as well. That and maybe even trying to organize it with a friend where you both buy the same bottle of wine and and chatting with them for a little while about it can be special in in a few different ways of having that connection time with someone and also talking about wine. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. No, that's a great idea. Um, And actually, yeah, I mean, that would be something cool to even do through Line Cook Thoughts to kind of set that up. But um, yeah, Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. And um, I really hope that during this time, you're, you know, we're all able to learn more, but it's, you know, I, I think wine is one of those things that you do need a dedicated, a dedicated amount of time to kind of just understand and learn. And I think if you're really interested in wine, you should be taking this time now to, you know, fully embrace it. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that you need to really be excited about or you need to really want to learn about it, I think, to get into it. 
but once you do, I mean, the, the like knowledge is endless. You can spend as much or as little time as you want learning about wine, but that's almost the beauty of it, that you can decide, I'm going to learn as much as I can about this great varietal today or about this wine region, about this specific producer, about this vineyard. Or you can say, I just, I want to know the difference between these two grapes and I'll decide which one I like better and that's what I'm going to drink. And that's great too. And I think because it almost has that view of like wine being pretentious, that people are almost like afraid of it or like they think it's something that's not. But at the end of the day, I like to remind myself, my friends, like it's fermented grape juice and it comes from one specific place. The person who makes it, their name is on the label and you can spend as much or as little as you want on it. As long as you like the taste of it at the end of the day, that's great. That's really all that matters is that you like what you're drinking and it's fun and you have a good time drinking it. Um, There was a book I read recently called Wine and War, which was actually incredibly fascinating. And it was all about France and the French wine regions during World War II. It's a great read, even if you're not interested in wine. Um, But there's this line um, that I'm going to read that I have a picture of, and it just says, it all depends on who and what you drink them with. Haven't you ever had a cheap little rosé with a special girl and thought, this is great? So just spending a little bit more or spending the same amount and just drinking even a not-so-great wine with a great person or someone you haven't seen in a while can can make something more special than it is, even. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, that's a that's a great idea, and I'll definitely have to check out that book because I've been reading a lot lately. So I'll definitely have to add that to the list. <laughs> um, well, you know, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, like I said, it means a ton. I know, even though we're in downtime, it you know, it still it still takes a lot to kind of talk about the food industry right now because I feel like a lot of people are also you know going through a lot of stuff with not being able to work and all that. So thank you for coming on. Um, as I end all podcasts, my last question will be that now that you've been on the podcast and I know you followed along for a while, uh, what does it mean for you to be a part of the Line Cook Nation, a group of chefs, cooks, and food service workers looking to connect and grow through each other? Um, it's really special to be able to be a part of this. I mean, to to get some of my thoughts out maybe to people who don't know me and maybe are similar to me is, is really special. And to, to still feel like I'm a part of the Line Cook Nation and feel a part of a kitchen, even though I don't work in one every day, is is also really nice to to still feel like I'm a part of this. Because I know sometimes it can be very, like, kitchen, front of house, kitchen, front of house. And it's it's nice to remember that we're, we're all here together. We're all in this together. And uh, it's, it's really fun to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and our groups of friends. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, well, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, if you do, I don't know if you want to drop your Instagram handle or anything where people can kind of follow you and, you know, yeah, sure. keep in touch. Or... Um, yeah, so I'm on Instagram. It's at Hannah here. Um, my name is spelled funny, so it's H-A-N-N-A-H-E-R-E. Um, I guess pretty simple. But yeah, if you have any questions, I'm on public, so you can private message me or anything like that and or any other questions. I'm there. <laughs> Awesome. Well, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, just stay safe during this time. And hopefully, we'll see you back in New York working pretty soon. Hopefully. Thank you, Ray.
Yeah, no problem.